I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. All right. Hi, Courtney. Oh. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Elise. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm also doing okay. Uh, listeners, in case we sound a little funny on this episode, it just so happens that both of us had oral surgery like days two weeks apart. Ago. Two, yeah. Yeah. yeah a few weeks. weeks ago. And so we are still kind of in the recovery process. We did not plan it until we realized that it was maybe going to affect mm-hmm. our audio medium. Yeah, but um, we appreciate you listening with kindness in your heart and accepting that about us in this episode, if you hear that. We're doing okay. We're doing okay. You don't need to worry about us. Yes. And dental health is important. Agreed. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. No, no, that's not. We actually are here to talk about Shakespeare and myth. Yeah. This is the second episode in our A Midsummer Night's Dream series, and Boy Howdy is midsummer filled with mythological influence. Oh, yeah. And that really piqued our interest. So that's what we plan to talk about. Shall we? We shall. Okay. So I'm going to start off today's discussion with a sort of history of English myth. I think when we think of A Midsummer Night's Dream, sometimes we think of it's set in Greece and there are Greek characters from Mm -hmm. Greek myth in here. But there's also a lot of English mythology influences here. And when I'm talking about English mythology, I'm really talking about the fairies and the depiction of the fairies. Right. So 
The term fairy arrived in Britain from France towards the end of the Middle Ages and was applied to what had previously been referred to across Britain as elves. Hmm. So before this, Anglo-Saxons really feared elves, but also saw them as this like model of seductive female beauty. Mm-hmm. But there was really no consistent or coherent view of elves slash fairies until basically Shakespeare was writing this play. Mind-blowing. Yeah. So the mythology from the Middle Ages to um, the late 1500s is kind of morphing and changing and developing into what will be the influence on A Midsummer Night's Dream. And so here's like kind of how it comes about. Okay. So in the 12th and 13th century, we have texts that introduce the following motifs into elven fairy myth. The idea that a world exists in parallel to the human one, that inhabitants sometimes have a ruler or sovereign of their own, and that they live longer and are somehow superior to humans. Also, the ability of these beings to enter the human world and sometimes steal human children away, (sighs) while humans can accidentally wander into the parallel world. Hmm. We also get, according to the making of the early modern British fairy tradition by Ronald Hutton, the beautiful supernatural women who exist and dance at night in secluded areas and can be wooed by or abducted by mortal humans, but who, quote, almost always eventually forsake the resulting marriage for their own realm, unquote. This time period also gives us the association with the color green in their clothing or their skin color and gives us that they can give blessings to people who they like and also lead people astray. And we get the first instance of human-like creatures that live in or enter homes where they can be useful or play tricks. Uh Uh-huh. Kind of like some of those things that Puck talks about in his first entrance. Mm Mm-hmm. It's also interesting to note that these stories are likely told in local communities, and there's nothing about them that actually suggests that they were strictly associated with a social elite. So these are are stories from commoners. Yeah. There's also a parallel stream of literature during the same period of about 1100 to 1250 called the Romances that, according to Hutton, quote, feature encounters between human characters and human-like beings who have sumptuous lifestyles mirroring those of the contemporary human social elite, unquote. And these works were composed across northwestern Europe from France to Ireland. And the romances are really important to fairy lore because those that were written in French gave us the beginnings for the word fairy, which comes from the term, the French term fae, which Mm -hmm. is spelled either F-A-Y, F-A-E, or F-A-I, and was applied to female human-like beings in the French romances. Mm. And furthermore, the term fairy derives from either that same root word or it developed in parallel to refer to events and phenomenon instead of creatures. And fairy only began to refer to a type of being in English in the 15th century. Mm, okay. So here's some things you might that might sound familiar from these French romances in the 12th and early 13th centuries that also show up in later literature. One poem called, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly because I do not speak French, Claris et Laris features Morgana. Oh. There's also the Batal Lokifer has three phase led by a character named Morgane. Mm-hmm. Those names might sound familiar to anybody who... Who knows Arthurian legend. Legend, yeah. Yeah. The most influential of these works to later periods was an epic poem called Juan de Bordeaux, which was written between 1216 and 1268, which introduces readers and listeners to a dwarf ruler of a forest kingdom with great magical powers, immense wealth, and a white marble capital city. His name is Oberon, A-U-B-E-R-O-N. And there we go. And then in the works of the priest Laomon, these types of beings raise Arthur, we were just talking about Arthurian legend, and then mm-hmm. return to their domain of Avalon at the end of Arthur's reign. And other parts of British fairy myth also continue to develop without a set synthesis of all these sources. According to Hutton, the Puck was a creature from Anglo-Saxon times known to, quote, lead nocturnal wayfarers into mires and pitfalls, unquote. And in the 14th century, the term goblin arrived, probably from French, and goblin activities overlapped with this Puck creature and a creature from the later Middle Ages called a bug, which could strike terror in people. 
So the mischievous elements of Puck is emerging. Yeah, the term Puck comes from Anglo-Saxon times. And then the kind of features of what a Puck is start to blend during this like 14th century time. Got it. We start to see like the very early beginnings of a systemic structure of belief appear by the end of the 13th century when alongside some religious movements, Elves start to be defined as former angels who are banished to earth for being neutral in the war in heaven, which banished rebel angels to hell. So that's kind of like a very early trying to make sense of what this British mythology is. Okay. In the early 14th century, the first English romances arrive, and they use classical, i.e. Greek and Roman influences or basis in their storytelling. So they're retelling Greek and Roman myths with anglicized contexts. I don't know. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. According to Hutton, quote, By the 15th century, the literary construct of the fairy kingdom was fully formed and had penetrated varieties of English literature other than romance, unquote. Skipping ahead, a few years, by the mid-15th century, the concept of the fairy realm was part of the mental world of English commoners. In 1450, for example, we start to see thieves and poachers calling themselves, quote, servants of the queen of the fairies, unquote. And Shakespeare actually references this in Henry IV, Part I. Mm. Hal and Falstaff have a bit where they're talking about serving the queen of the night when they're going to go commit a robbery. And I don't know if this has anything to do with Elizabeth, but Elizabeth is also called the fairy queen. Oh, yeah. I'll get to that in about 100 years. Okay. Give me a minute. Uh (laughs) We're almost there. Okay. So in 1489, we have the first recorded appearance of Robin Goodfellow. And in 1531, William Tyndale gives Robin Goodfellow the role of leading night travelers astray at night, much like the Puck did 400 years prior. In 1584, we have Reginald Scott align Puck with the household spirit that helps practical tasks in exchange for bread and milk. So in this long arc of English mythology pretty close to when Shakespeare's about to right. write. Midsummer. Midsummer. Mm-hmm. Just a generation or so removed. Mm-hmm. We also see the emer- the emergence or the re-emergence of an Oberion, O-B-E-R-I-O-N, as a fairy personality. This Oberion is a spirit invoked by ritual magicians and is possibly inspired by or related to that earlier Oberon in Juan mm-hmm. de Bordeaux. So right before Shakespeare's time, about 1560, we start to get fairy mythology becoming the subject of intense interest across most of Britain and was perhaps most dominant in British culture between 1560 and 1640, right during the time Uh our boy is writing. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason for this fascination, um, according to Hutton, is likely a result of the rising interest in spirits in general that came after the Reformation, Mm -hmm. much like... James I and demonology, demonology yeah. and the broader European drive to, quote, examine, explore, and understand the world, which led to what is familiarly called the scientific revolution, unquote. Mm. During this 80-year span, characters from the Middle Ages forward, these characters that we've talked about, um, are given greater definition and prominence, most significantly, Oberon from Juan de Bordeaux, anglicized as Oberon, becomes the favorite name for the fairy king. Mm. We also see the household fairy go from a creature that helps with household tasks into fairies rewarding people who do their household tasks well and punishing the lazy slash dirty. Robin Goodfellow becomes the most famous of all English spirits, and he became an ethical hero that aided the victims of wrongdoing and punished wrongdoers. Elizabeth I, like you mentioned. Uh Uh-huh. Yay, we're here. We're here. We made it. (laughs) She becomes the first monarch to benefit from the heightened interest in fairyland. She's saluted as a fairy queen herself, most famously in Spencer's Fairy Queen. And fairy monarchs are written in homage to her. King James I condemned fairies as a kind of demon. He also was kind of permissive of them as his son, Henry, Prince of Wales, appeared as Oberon in a court mask. Really? Mm-hmm. He's like, I uh, frown upon this, but for you, son, you can have this one. Yeah. Right, right, right. He maybe wasn't, like, as upset about it yeah. as he wrote. It- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, according to Hutton as well, in this period, fairyland also functions as, quote, an embodiment of hedonism, 
summed up in its characteristic activity of song and dance. As such, it was a gift to lyrical poets writing English equivalents of classical, pastoral, and indeed translations of actual Greek and Roman texts during the period routinely rendered nymphs and equivalent beings into English as fairies, unquote. And Shakespeare, we see, uses fairies in multiple plays, showing them as imposing and benevolent, ridiculous, a cover story for fraud, and a danger comparable with witches. And he also uses Greek myth. Yes. And I know you have more to say about that. I do. Originally, I thought I was going to take apart Greek myth in this play, Mm -hmm. and my research went down another path, which I'll get to later. But I thought for the listeners at home, I would bring up the main Greek myths. Well, Greek slash Roman. You're going to hear I use both Greek and Roman names. Interchangeably. Interchangeably, yeah. And um, I just wanted to give a highlight of these myths in case you are not as familiar. If anyone wants a big deep dive, I recommend the Let's Talk About Myths Baby podcast because Liv Albert, the host, talks extensively about the narratives, translations, talks to scholars in the field. But for our purposes, we're going to look at the very bare bones myths of these Greek slash Roman mythological characters. First and foremost is Theseus, the Athenian king in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Mythological Theseus was the mythical king and founder hero of Athens, where our story takes place. He is the son of Aegeus, king of Athens, and Aethra. He was raised in his mother's land, and when he became a man, his mother then told him the truth about his father's identity and that he must take a sword and sandals back to the king of Aegeus to claim his birthright. And his hero's journey includes the six labors. In all of these labors, Theseus defeats all of the baddies. When he arrives in Athens, he has a series of adventures. Uh, He defeated the Marathonian bull. He almost got poisoned by Medea. And he was reunited with his father. Theseus slayed the Minotaur. That's another one of his myths. In the Minotaur episode, he promised Ariadne he would take her away from Minos and marry her. On his way back to Athens, Theseus abandons everyone on the ship, including Ariadne. And then he marries Phaedra, Ariadne's sister. Mm Mm-hmm. Phaedra is his second wife after Hippolyta. Um, There are also more tales in Theseus's myth, but these are some of the big ones. The really important part of Theseus is that in Plutarch's Life of Theseus, one of the sources where Shakespeare gets a lot of his inspiration, Theseus's purpose is to construct a life that parallels the life of Romulus, the founding myth of Rome. Oh. So he is a uh, mythical king and founder hero of Athens, and that's why... Plutarch wrote Life of Theseus. I see. And another main character in Greek myth that we see in A Midsummer Night's Dream is Hippolyta. Hippolyta was a daughter of Ares, the god of war, and Otrera, the first queen of the Amazons. And she mostly features in myth as a element of other people's stories, most famously the myths of Hercules and Theseus. Mm. And Hippolyta's belt was the object of Hercules's ninth labor. And it's said that Hippolyta was so impressed with Hercules that she gave him the belt. And then the goddess Hera, being a spiteful goddess, <laughs> made right. herself appear as one of the Amazons, spread a rumor about them that Hercules and his crew were abducting their queen. So then the Amazons attacked the ship that Hippolyta was on. And in the fray that followed, Hercules slew Hippolyta, stripped her of the belt, fought off the attackers, and sailed away, completing his ninth labor. Oh. Yeah. In the myth of Theseus, some of these details are less clear. In Theseus's myth, Theseus joins Hercules, and some versions say Theseus abducted her, some that Hercules did the abducting and then gave her to Theseus, others say that she fell in love with Theseus and willingly left him, Mm -hmm. so it varies depending on who was telling the story. Yeah. But in any case, she was taken to Athens where she was to be wed to Theseus, which is what we see in A Midsummer Night's Dream. In some renditions, the other Amazons became enraged at the marriage and attacked Athens. And this is the Attic War in which the Amazonians were defeated by Athenian forces. And you might notice that Theseus had a second wife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In other renditions, Theseus left Hippolyta to marry Phaedra. Angered by this, Hippolyta railed her Amazons to attack the wedding ceremony. Either Hippolyta was killed in the battle, 
Theseus directly killed her or she was accidentally killed by another Amazon. And some myths will choose to leave out the wedding and the battle. But that's the core of Hippolyta in Greek myth. There are other myths. One of them is Cupid and Psyche, specifically from the Golden Ass, which uh-huh. I talked about in the um, bottom section of our Sex and Sexuality episode. And uh, the Cupid and Psyche tale concerns the overcoming of obstacles to the love and union between Cupid, the god of desire, and Psyche, a mortal-turned-Greek goddess who's often represented with butterfly wings. Oh. Mm-hmm. And in the Cupid and Psyche myth, Cupid is sent by his jealous mother, Venus, to shoot Psyche with an arrow so that she may fall in love with something hideous. The dart makes any living thing fall in love with the first thing it sees. He instead scratches himself with his own dart, so consequently, he falls in love with Psyche. Oh. So that's like the love and idleness Mm -hmm. flower. The love and idleness is referred to as Cupid's arrow. And in Apuleius's The Golden Ass, which is a Roman story, the main character, Lucius, is transformed into a donkey by magic gone wrong. And Lucius undergoes various trials and adventures. And halfway through the narrative, he retells the Cupid and Psyche story as a mise-en-ambeam technique or inserting a story within a story. And the last Greek-slash-Roman myth that's really prominent in this play is Pyramus and Thisbe. Mm-hmm. Pyramus and Thisbe is a story about a pair of ill-fated lovers, uh, and this is a part of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Which was also a huge... Uh, influence on Shakespeare. Influence, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have done some reading about how some of these myths and Greco-Roman classics have... Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you've hit on some ones that are, like, the three big ones we know, or, like, three of the big ones in this play. Mm-hmm. And I found in my research um, some additional Greco-Roman influences or syncretism between the two um, mythological bodies of work. So like I said, there's this tendency in like the early 14th century, English romances start using Greco-Roman influences in their storytelling or doing um, modern versions of Greco-Roman myth. And this is where we actually start to see Oberon and Titania as Persephone and Hades. Oh. Yeah. So like you, I'm, I may go back and forth a little bit between um, the Greco-Roman names for Persephone and Hades. Hades is also known as Pluto in the Roman pantheon. Persephone is known as Proserpina in the Roman pantheon. So I may use those interchangeably. Okay. So from about 1300 on... The king and queen of the fairies are closely tied with the god and goddess of the underworld in English myth. Around 1300, an anonymous poem called Sir Orofeo um, is kind of the first incidence we have of this. Um, it retells the Eurydice and Orpheus myth with mm. a happy ending oh. and replaces Hades slash the underworld with the land of a nameless king of fairy who rules over the realm of the dead instead of Pluto slash Hades. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who's unfamiliar, the Orpheus Eurydice myth is essentially a young poet falls in love with this girl. She accepts a job in the underworld, and he goes down there to save her and makes a deal with Hades that if he can sing a song to fix what's wrong with the world, which is spring hasn't come in a long time because Persephone has not returned to Earth in a long time, mm-hmm. then Hades will release Eurydice. Right. And he does this, and the song works. Hades says, okay, you can take Eurydice, but she has to follow behind you. And if you look back even once, she will be lost forever. Yeah. And they make it basically to the mouth of uh, Hades and... Orpheus turns back. Mm. He should have trusted his girls there. Ooh, yeah, because he didn't trust that uh, she was following. Mm-hmm. So that's the story. So by the end of the 1300s, there's this archetype of fairies and their king and queen um, starting to solidify, especially with uh, Chaucer's writing. So in The Wife of Bath's Tale, Chaucer talks of how Britain was full of fairies and Quote, the elf queen with her jolly company danced full oft in many a green mead, unquote. 
In Sir Topas, he establishes a distinct queen of the fairies as he has a knight decide that he must win the life of an elf queen only to head to the land of the fairies and encounter the queen of the fairies. Mm. So we also start seeing this idea of like there's a distinct person who is the queen of the fairies. Yeah. Also, side note, I don't mean to interrupt, but Sir Topas, is that the same Sir Topas as Twelfth Night with Festy? I don't know, but it could be a reference to that. I also picked up on that, yeah. <laughs> we'll put a pin in this. Who knows? Chaucer also falls back into borrowing from classical myth. In The Merchant's Tale, he makes Pluto slash Hades the king of fairy with his queen, Proserpina, Persephone, who enter the human world with their trains and use their powers to influence human affairs. Does that sound familiar? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, that does sound familiar. That sounds... <laughs> also, in the late 1400s, Robert Henderson also retells Orpheus and Eurydice and makes Proserpina a goddess infernal and queen of fairy. William Dunbar makes Pluto the Elric Incubus in a cloak of green, so like a, a like evil elf. And then in the early 1500s, Sir David Lindsay makes the court of the Queen of the Fairies the place that one of his characters hopes to go after death. So multiple threads closely tying the idea of the fairies of English myth being related to or actually taking the place of Hades, Pluto, Persephone, Proserpina. Right. And then Oberon's name, as we mentioned earlier, in Juan de Bordeaux, we see Oberon, um, who's a sort of grace figure that protects Juan. Ben Johnson and Robert Greene also write of Oberon as a fairy king who sort of is a grace figure who kind of guides the morals of their plays and has a connection to the afterlife. In Green, Oberon brings a character back to life. And in Johnson, he lives in a celestial palace of knights who have been reborn. Mm. And then um, we can also say that Shakespeare's Oberon is also a figure for Grace who works to preserve chaste marriages. Mm -hmm. Oberon um, even reminds Puck that they are not of the same sort of spirits as those that have been exiled from the light. Mm -hmm. You know, be around during the daytime, essentially. They're not evil spirits who walk or ghosts or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Titania has a little bit more of a stronger, even stronger connection to Persephone, Proserpina. Her name can be traced back to Ovid's Metamorphoses, where Titania is used as an epithet for Diana, chaste goddess of the moon. And I know, you may be thinking, chaste goddess of the moon? That's not who Shakespeare wrote. No. But from the Middle Ages onward, Diana, or her Greek counterpart Artemis, were treated as a triple deity and began to be conflated with Persephone, Proserpina, and Hecate. Yeah, the triple I was thinking, Hecate's in there. Yeah, the triple goddess. In The Knight's Tale, Diana is addressed as a goddess of heaven and earth and, quote, queen of the reign of Pluto, Dirk, and Lo, unquote. So she's getting connected to Pluto, Pluto to and the Proserpina. underworld. According to Paul A. Olson's article, A Midsummer Night's Dream and the Meaning of Court Marriage, quote, in the Renaissance, as in the 14th century, Diana presented three aspects. In heaven, sky, or the sky, she is called Luna. In the woods, Diana, and under the earth, Hecate or Proserpina, unquote. And I do just want to say, I'm going to say Hecate because that is the Greek pronunciation of this goddess. But when we refer to the Shakespeare character, because it has to scan, and this is how the English pronounce this name um, during Shakespeare's time, in other episodes, we may say this name as Hecate. Yeah. Francis Thin, a writer in Shakespeare's time who was writing about the Knight's Tale, described the prayer I mentioned earlier as dedicated to Diana Hecate. And Lily, John Lily, has a Luna in The Woman in the Moon, who is queen of the woods and wife of Pluto. Mm. Mm -hmm. Paul Olson posits that Shakespeare combined Chaucer and Ovid, English and Greco-Roman myth, into Titania like Lily did. Like Proserpina in Chaucer's Merchant's Tale, Titania is queen of the fairies and knows a little something about lechery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Also, the moon in this play is in its last phase for most of the play, which is the phase where Diana Hecate rules. Mm. So why is she a woodland goddess and not clearly Hecate fr or from the underworld? Right. By this time, there was an established tradition, like what Lily did, that conflated all three aspects into one. So she's all of them at once. Right. And rather than placing all of these characters in fairyland in the underworld, it's mm -hmm. a woodland fairyland. Right. 
and other writers of the period also considered Titania to be Proserpina. According to Olsen, Campion has an air that sings of Proserpina as a fairy queen who, quote, dwells in an arbor, leads rounds of dancing by moonlight, and sends abroad her servants to satisfy her capricious desires. Mm. Similarly, Drayton's Nymphidia tells us that Oberon's wife is a queen Mab, and that she is aided by her classical counterpart, her ally and ancient friend, Proserpina, unquote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Elizabethan audiences who knew their classics would have tied Titania to Persephone, Proserpina, when they saw her appear with the same flowers that Ovid's Titania picks on the fields of Enna, or when they saw that she alters the seasonal cycle like Proserpina does when Pluto takes her down to Hades. Mm. Additionally, Puck mentions that the fairies run, quote, by the triple Hecate's team. Again, that's how it scans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Oberon says that the snake sheds its skin near the queen's bower, which further ties Titania to Hecate. The snake is a symbol of Hecate. So Elizabethan audiences would have picked up that Titania appears with and like talks about flowers, the same flowers that Ovid's Titania picks on the fields of Enna right before she is abducted by Hades Pluto. We can argue that the audiences, the learned audiences, especially since this play was pretty much written for a court, court marriage, marriage. Yeah. They picked up on this. And it was popular, too. It was a popular, not only are they learned, but it's also it's, it's, it's super popular. Po yeah. yeah. Metamorphoses is super popular. Yeah. Also, um, I think it's important to note that because Proserpina, Persephone, had power over the coming and going of the seasons, she was allegorized as a kind of fertility goddess. Like Proserpina, Titania is a queen of summer and an earth goddess, and her servants, cobweb, moth, mm -hmm. mustard, mustard seed, seed, are products of the earth. Mm -hmm. Like a fertility goddess, she is surrounded by a sensuous bower and engages in eroticism with bottom, as we talked about in our sex and sexuality episode. Mm -hmm. Hecate is also a goddess of coming and going. In some myths, she maintains the border between the underworld and this world. In the religions of the Orphics and the Platonists, which are ancient Greek religions based on the literature ascribed to Orpheus and the philosophies of Plato, respectively, Chore Persephone, which is an aspect of the maiden aspect of Persephone. It, that's like in Lore Olympus. Yeah. If yeah. you're a reader of Lore Olympus, you are familiar, familiar with the concept of, um, and they pronounce it Chore. Yeah. Chore Persephone, who is the all-pervading goddess of nature who both produces and destroys everything. <sighs> and she is therefore mentioned along with or identified as other divinities, including Artemis Diana and Hecate. All is to say, so, so Titania. <laughs> all of this to say, a like laundry <laughs> list of all of this to, all say. to say. Titania is very closely tied to Persephone, as well as Hecate and Diana, and Oberon is very closely tied to Pluto Hades. Mm. So if you wanted to add another layer, if you've been wondering why is that relationship the way it is, well, yeah. it draws on a long Line literary tradition of, of an incredibly problematic and problematic marriage. Right. I don't know. It, gave, no, it that... gave me a lot of answers. It also gave me an answer as to like why she wakes up and is suddenly like, almost seems like a completely different person because if the phase of the moon has changed so has her personality and that is such a valuable way to direct an actor and say like this is the motivation in mm -hmm. in these different parts of the um of the play that's fascinating mm -hmm. i don't know it's an interesting like thing to consider when directing or producing this play to give your actors if they're struggling with this relationship of, well, this is how we see them because she's dread Persephone at this moment. And she is angry because that is that is the aspect that she is. And, but she's also this fertility goddess. And so I suppose it's useful in the same way as analyzing Puck and seeing how Puck identifies Themself and that make like mm -hmm. helping inform some of the choices like who is Puck in this moment is this Goblin Puck is this Robin Goodfellow you know just mm -hmm. cultural references to aid the actors in a way that is a little bit distant to us now because that's not how we think like traditional Greco-Roman mythology has I think separated itself at least in America from the British mm -hmm. amalgamation from Shakespeare from Shakespeare yeah. and so I would not have picked up on the three goddesses being one. To me, it feels to me like when we first 
research the four humors, which now I see everywhere. Same. And I'm like, this is such a huge, like, you know, red underline piece of direction that the playwright is giving us. Eye opening. <laughs> and this to me was like, oh, why I like doing this work is that, you know, sometimes we can turn ourselves in circles, inwardly in circles, trying to justify as actors right. why a character is doing, doing this thing. or why they or why they seem to know why did she no longer care about the changeling child why does she why does she not care about what Oberon yeah. has done to her why do they just seem fine and there's no more conflict it seems like that's just the start of the conflict and it's like oh well if she's an entirely new person essentially when she wakes up because the phase of the moon has changed yeah it's not a fun answer but it is a simple answer yeah it gives you places to start as you explore especially mm-hmm. this Persephone and Hades aspect. Right. How Persephone and Hades evolved and Shakespeare's English classes, his you know, his schoolhouse would have been filled with all of this myth and folklore, but also like how people were writing it in that day. So it's not just they're looking at like, what did Ovid say? They're looking at like, what were English, British people? Like, what was Chaucer's yeah. version of this? Yeah. Or that, that Sir Orofeo like has a happy ending. You know, it's like you brought up Laura Olympus. It's like Laura Olympus giving the Persephone and Hades myth a sort of happy origin story Mm -hmm. instead of the classical telling where it is a violent abduction. Right. Your research kind of led you down a path of what things maybe should be considered in production with some of these characters based on Greek myth. Right? Right. And I think that the research that you did on the development of these um, characters, Oberon and Titania, also can come into play with the reading that I did. Mm-hmm. I did some reading on the practice of double casting the actors who play Theseus and Hippolyta with Oberon and Titania, and how double casting mm-hmm. can, you know, we've done a pretty extensive dive on Oberon and Titania at this point, but can then inform Theseus and Hippolyta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I read A Midsummer Night's Dream, Anamorphism, and Theseus's Dream by James L. Calderwoo. Anamorphism in Renaissance art is a perspective change presented to what is seen by a viewer when they're looking at a painting head-on versus from the side. So a great example of this is Hans Holbein's The Ambassadors. If you don't know what that painting uh, looks like, I highly recommend Googling it. Here I go. <laughs> Yeah, I can describe to you what I see. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Um, Look at it uh, head on and then turn to the side. Can I do that on my iPad? I guess, yeah. Just kind of turn your perspective if you can. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking at is we've got two Tudor-looking dudes. One on the left is like much more ornate looking, like very Henry VIII vibes. Pay less attention to what they're dressed as and just take a look at the the surroundings. Mm-hmm. Ah, uh-huh. Um, and there's like musical, in- there's a, looks like a lute, musical instruments. And then there's this like skull on the ground that head on looks very wonky. Mm-hmm. But then if I turn it, I can see the skull. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's this sort of from head on, it looks like a disc shape. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at it from the side, it changes into a skull. So that's an anamorphism where your perspective is changed. Mm, okay. Good job, Elise. So like the anamorphism of Renaissance art, Shakespeare changes what is seen, that is the scenes, S-C-E-N-E-S, with three panels in Midsummer. The first is the head-on scene of Theseus's Athens, and then the anamorphic effect takes place in the forest, and then the last panel returns to Athens. And one place where the anamorphism is helpful in trying to decide, like, these, figure out these characters, especially Theseus, Calder Wu points out is, Theseus has this odd line in the opening scene where he demands Hermia do the will of Aegeus, her father, and marry Demetrius. And then in Act 4, his opinion has changed and he tells Aegeus that he has dismissed the call to invoke Theseus's earlier punishment. And there is no reason for Theseus to change his mind. Uh, unless we say that Oberon basically wills it to be so right beforehand, right? 
And so maybe this is reflective of anamorphism, of the visual doubling puns that registers Shakespeare's device of doubling the roles of Theseus and Apollyta with Oberon and Titania. Mm. And if we see Theseus and Apollyta's actors playing Oberon and Titania, we can start to connect the sameness of Athens and fairyland. An example is Theseus won Hippolyta by doing her injuries. Aegeus, Theseus, and Demetrius won Hermia by doing her injuries. And Oberon won Titania by doing her injuries. Oh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if Oberon and Titania, the characters, are in Act 1, Scene 1 through Theseus and Hippolyta through the actors' bodies, the, quote, best of this kind are but shadows, unquote, the shadows meaning Oberon and Titania, as a darkness to Theseus and Hippolyta's premarital mm-hmm. harmonies. Right. Mm-hmm. So we learned that Oberon had an affair with Hippolyta and Titania had an affair with Theseus. The marital problems of the fairy king and queen serve a sharp discord with the Athenian rulers whose unification arose out of wooing with a sword and doing injuries. So Theseus, who wooed Hippolyta with force and is taming her through marriage, can complete the taming through the use of Oberon taming Titania. Okay. In Plutarch's Life of Theseus, Plutarch says that the conflict between the Greeks and Amazons almost went to the Amazons. And if the Amazons had conquered the Athenians, according to Plutarch, the Athenian men would have suffered the fate of being subjected to feminine clothing and responsibilities. And this, you know, this is a, an anxiety that justifies Theseus taming Hippolyta. And this fear permeates the literature and culture of early modern England, so women dominating men. Mm-hmm. And this fate is similar to a scene from a British myth of Spencer's The Fairy Queen, where Amazonian queen Radagund forced her captive males to the same fate of being subjected to female clothing and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Radagund was defeated by the female warrior Britomart, who set the enslaved knights free and then set the world right again. And... This fear of Amazons and Theseus's taming of Hippolyta emerges from the Elizabethan conflicting view that Amazons are both noble, valiant, beautiful, and chaste, like Diana, while at the same time viewing them as cunning, cruel, and tyrannous. Mm-hmm. So Spencer's fairy queen, uh, with this Queen Radagund and the female warrior Britomart, depicts a scene in which Britomart, the chaste female warrior, kills the Amazon queen Radagund and chastity and marriage triumph over, this is a quote from the fairy queen, licentious liberty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which a lot like what we were talking about in Sex and Sexuality with like court marriage and like the bookends of this play mm-hmm. are like reinforcing this chaste marriage reason over licentiousness. Exactly. And given this Elizabethan Amazon, Theseus can't be too sure of his conquered queen's next moves. Calderwu notes that Hippolyta is this enigma in the opening scene. There is this line, what cheer, my love, that is open to interpretation for Hippolyta. Mm-hmm. And Calderwu wonders if, given anamorphism in the double casting, is Fairyland a nightmare dream of Theseus and Hippolyta's? Is Theseus worried about the outcome of his marriage to the Amazonian queen? And Hippolyta also has every reason to be worried about the upcoming wedding. So... Analyzing Hippolyta as Titania through this double casting, Titania's speech about the changeling child can harken back to Hippolyta's Amazonian past, a feminine world rich with fertility, conception, pregnancy, and birth. And also, Titania is a uh, fertility goddess. Mm -hmm. And in opposition, Oberon's demand for the changeling child is described through the masculine trade and money-making. So, is this a nightmare of men invading female spaces? For example, the child is a male who caused the death of the votaress. Mm -hmm. The arrival of men curtail the lives of other women in this play, Hippolyta, Hermia, Helena. Mm -hmm. Oberon, a man, demands that Titania let the past and present of the votaress and changeling child die. And all of these women have to say goodbye to the feminine ideal and or life outside of male influence and accept the loss through Protestant marital relationships. So man dominates. He's the ruler of the household and the relationship. Mm-hmm. And also looking at Hippolyta through Titania, Elizabethans also viewed Amazons as unfit mothers. Their fear was, quote, not only did the Amazons refuse to suckle their sons, but according to their enemies, they often slew them at birth. 
At best, they banish them to the fathers for rearing. Or, a third account preferred by violent anti-feminists, these outrageous mothers dislocated the boys' joints and then enslaved the cripples at spinning, unquote. So Hippolyta as Titania experiences Titania's desire as an immortal fairy queen for a child through stepmotherhood. And not at the end of the play, but if you look at the myth beyond Theseus and Hippolyta's marriage, Hippolyta is to become the mother of Hippolytus, her yeah. and Theseus's son. And the Hippolyta as Titania from the standpoint of the dream extends into Hippolyta's sexual desire being tamed through the enchantment of Titania to bottom that degradation we talked about in sex and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Thus, the presumptuously masculine Amazon Queen Hippolyta, through Titania, is purged the unseemingly aggressive desire to dominate men, part of Theseus's anxieties about taming Hippolyta. And Bottom is seemingly indifferent to Titania's sexual prowess, so Calderwu writes that Titania's I-therefore-you approach to love with this oblivious bestial Bottom is a lesson for Hippolyta that there are limits to queenly command, one for Hippolyta as Titania to take note of. Hmm. I have one last anamorphism that Calderwu points out that I've never noticed in the play until then, is that, or I've never really thought about this, is the patriarchy through parentage. So returning to the first scene, Theseus demands Hermia treat her father, Aegeus, as a god. And at no point is there a Mrs. Aegeus on stage. Mm -hmm. So Midsummer has a missing mother. And she's not like she's not necessarily dead or missing, but she is not present for the deliberation. And with Aegeus, any Elizabethan familiar with the Theseus myth would recognize that Aegeus, A-E-G-U-S, also Aegeus, E-G-E-U-S, is Theseus's father. Mythological Theseus is the son of Aegeus, yes. mm -hmm, the king of mm -hmm. Athens. And Theseus's marriage to Hippolyta, Calderwu says, and I'm not totally familiar with this element of Theseus's myth, but takes place after he killed the Minotaur and is trying to return to Athens with Ariadne. He flew the black sail that caused his father to fling himself into what became the Aegean Sea, and Aegeus as king is no more. So we have King Theseus. Mm -hmm. So, like, symbolically for the law... What Theseus references when determining Hermia's fate that he cannot abolish is, quote, the ancient privilege of Athens, unquote, or a law he inherited from his father, King Aegeus. Midsummer's Aegeus tries to enact the mm -hmm. law against Hermia in Act 4, and for some reason, Theseus does away with it. And then Aegeus does not return to the stage. So this change of mind might be uh, explained through Theseus as Oberon. Uh, once order is returned to Oberon and Titania in Fairyland, Theseus's anxieties over his marriage may reside, and he is able to release the lovers and his wife from his authoritarian excess. Mm. And one interesting thing to note, Oberon calls Titania my queen twice in 4-1. Mm -hmm. And then after a quick change, uh, the double Titania returns to Hippolyta, and she is referred to as fair queen, as close as Theseus can get to saying fairy queen. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Yeah. How much of that the audience will be able to pick up on, I'm not sure. But I think that's a fascinating take on those four characters, four actors. And how often how often they are doubled. And it's a really interesting, like, potential concept of these actually are the same people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one is, this is just how they are appearing to mortals. And then, you know, or the dream Right. Or it's, you know, their dream at night. Super interesting. And it, it definitely seems like there's enough in there to be like, these characters are supposed to be doubled because there's these kind of like winks and nods that are there if they're being played by the same actors. Actors. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're saying that there's so much because they'd be the same actors. Like Theseus doesn't make any sense to me aside from being a party boy. Like that's how I read him. He's a party boy who's getting married mm -hmm, mm -hmm. after, you know, yeah. going off to, you know, war and... I love Abrotheus. Yes, Abrotheus, yes. <laughs> but then at least like the journey that Hippolyta and Theseus make, if the same bodies are going through the journey of Titania and Oberon, that can bleed into, you know, it's, I mean, it's unfortunate because Hippolyta's journey is being tamed just like Titania's. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is the text that we're working with. These are the stories is, that we're working yeah. with. 
these are the stories this is what was interesting in you know the late 1500s yeah. and we have to either come to terms with it or not do it right right exactly yeah, yeah I, I don't know if anyone has taken this concept of the Hippolyta as Titania and Theseus as Oberon character narratives but I think it's a fascinating exercise that could be super effective, mm -hmm. like you said, in like making some of these, what's what I'm looking for, their similarities make sense. And their kind of parallelisms make a little bit of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, if you pull apart this like idea of um, them being n the same characters, just like different aspects, like we were talking mm -hmm. earlier, um, and that these bodies are going through it, I wonder then in the play within a play, Titania Hippolyta encounters in Hippolyta bottom for the first time. Mm. I think I think one one question that I would like prod into this is like, well, what happens there? Right. Is there a recognition? Is there something? Because if we're saying that they are the same and this one person is going through this, then that one person went through being attracted to yeah. this guy as an and of course he had, you know, the head of an ass, but she was also able to see him after the ass's head was removed by puck yeah so is that surprising yeah and then this this would like wrap up in a bow that's not necessarily well got a marriage at the end but it wraps mm -hmm. up these two locations in something tighter than just they're getting married you know the dream is it, no mm -hmm. it was a dream wink and then <laughs> it's married you know then mm -hmm. there's marriage it's like no these are interconnected spaces Right. Somehow, or like through these characters, these are interconnected yeah. spaces. And I, and then I, yeah. And then I also wonder like how you how you work with the language that Thesis and Hippolyta have of like, Hippolyta has, a, you know, it's really strange what the lovers say happened. And he's like, you know, mm. I don't know if I'll, I don't know if it's believable, but, you know, they are all telling the same story. So I guess we got to believe it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to then like have to tackle that language if you're saying that like these two know what happened or at least Ob at least Oberon, Oberon Theseus does. Yeah. Because someone else was too busy. Yeah. Um, yeah, somebody was drugged. But then would she not remember Bottom? Would Bottom remember her? Yeah. Yeah, and then on top of that, splash in more British mythology with some fairy lore. Fascinating. Yeah, super fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think this play is often looked at as a very light comedy. Mm -hmm. And there's many layers in here that are waiting to be peeled back. Yes. Someone, please, peel them back for us. And on that note, thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare, any, and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Twelfth Night, Act Two, Scene Four, said by Festy. No pain, sir. I take pleasure in singing, sir.